Section three of Omega the last days of the world This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer Please visit LibriVox.org Omega the last days of the world by Camille Flammarion part one chapter three Never within the history of man had the immense hemicycle constructed at the end of the twentieth century been invaded by so compact a crowd. It would have been mechanically impossible for another person to force an entrance. The amphitheatre, the boxes, the tribunes, the galleries, the aisles, the stairs, the corridors, the doorways, all to the very steps of the platform, were filled with people sitting or standing. Among the audience were the President of the United States of Europe, the Director of the French Republic, the Directors of the Italian and Iberian Republics, the Chief Ambassador of India, the Ambassadors of the British, German, Hungarian, and Muscovite Republics, the King of the Congo, the President of the Committee of Administrators, all the Ministers, the Prefect of the International Exchange, the Cardinal Archbishop of Paris, the Director General of Telephones, the president of the council of aerial navigation and electric roads the director of the international bureau of time the principal astronomers chemists physiologists and physicians of france a large number of state officials formerly called deputies or senators many celebrated writers and artists in a word a rarely assembled galaxy of the representatives of science politics commerce industry literature and every sphere of human activity the platform was occupied by the president vice presidents permanent secretaries and orators of the day but they did not wear as formerly the green coat and chapeau or the old-fashioned sword they were dressed simply in civil costume and for two centuries and a half every european decoration had been suppressed those of central africa on the contrary were of the most brilliant description domesticated monkeys which for more than half a century had filled every place of service impossible otherwise to provide for stood at the doors in conformity to the regulations rather than to verify the cards of admission for long before the hour fixed upon every place had been occupied the president opened the session as follows now it is needless to remind the reader that the language of the 35th century is here translated into that of the 19th ladies and gentlemen you all know the object for which we are assembled never certainly has humanity passed through such a crisis as this never indeed has this historic room of the 20th century contained such an audience the great problem of the end of the world has been for a fortnight the single object of discussion and study among savants the results of their discussions and researches are now to be announced without further preamble i give place to the director of the observatory the astronomer immediately arose holding a few notes in his hand he had an easy address an agreeable voice and a pleasant countenance his gestures were few and his expression pleasing he had a broad forehead and a magnificent head of curling white hair framed his face he was a man of learning and of culture as well as of science and his whole personality inspired both sympathy and respect his temperament was evidently optimistic 
even under circumstances of great peril scarcely had he begun to speak when the mournful and anxious faces before him became suddenly calm and reassured ladies he began i address myself first to you begging you not to tremble in this way before a danger which may well be less terrible than it seems i hope presently to convince you by the arguments which i shall have the honor to lay before you that the comet whose approach is expected by the entire race will not involve the total ruin of the earth doubtless we may and should expect some catastrophe but as for the end of the world really everything would lead us to believe that it will not take place in this manner worlds die of old age not by accident and ladies you know better than i that the world is far from being old gentlemen i see before me representatives of every social sphere from the highest to the most humble before a danger so apparent threatening the destruction of all life it is not surprising that every business operation should be absolutely suspended nevertheless as for myself i confess that if the boers was not closed and if i had never had the misfortune to be interested in speculation i should not hesitate to-day to purchase securities which have fallen so low this sentence was finished before a noted american israelite a prince of finance director of the journal of the twenty-fifth century occupying a seat on one of the upper steps of the amphitheatre forced his way one hardly knows how through the rows of benches and rolled like a ball to the corridor leading to an exit through which he disappeared after the momentary interruption caused by this unexpected sequel to a purely scientific remark the orator resumed our subject he said may be considered on the three heads one is the collision of the comet with the earth certain if this question is answered in the affirmative we shall have to examine two the nature of the comet and three the possible effects of a collision i have no need to remind so intelligent an audience as this that the prophetic words end of the world so often heard to-day signify solely end of the earth which moment indeed of all others has the most interest for us if we are able to answer the first question in the negative it will be quite superfluous to consider the other two which would become of secondary interest unfortunately i must admit that the calculations of the astronomers are in this case as usual entirely correct yes the comet will strike the earth and doubtless with maximum force since the impact will be direct the velocity of the earth is twenty nine thousand four hundred meters per second that of the comet is forty one thousand six hundred sixty meters plus the acceleration due to the attraction of our planet the initial velocity of contact therefore will be seventy two thousand meters per second the collision is inevitable with all its consequences if the impact of the comet is direct but it will be slightly oblique but do not for this reason take matters so to heart in itself the collision proves nothing if it were announced for example that a railway train was to encounter a swarm of flies this prediction would not greatly trouble the traveler it may well be that the collision of our earth with this nebulous star will be of the same nature permit me now to examine calmly the two remaining questions first what is the nature of the comet that everyone knows already it is a gas 
whose principal constituent is carbonic oxide invisible under ordinary conditions at the temperature of stellar space 273 degrees below zero this gas is in a state of vapor even of solid particles the comet is saturated with them i shall not in this manner dispute in the least the discoveries of science this confession deepened anew the painful expression on the faces of most of the audience and here a long sigh was drawn but gentlemen resumed the astronomer until one of our eminent colleagues of the section of physiology or of the academy of medicine deigns to prove for us that the density of the comet is sufficient to admit of its penetration into our atmosphere i do not believe that its presence is likely to exert a fatal influence upon human life i say is likely for it is not possible to affirm this with certainty although the probability is very great one might perhaps wager a million to one in any case only those affected with weak lungs will be its victims it will be a simple influenza which may increase three or fivefold the daily death rate if however as the telescopes and camera agree in indicating the nucleus contains large mineral masses probably of a metallic nature uranolites measuring several kilometers in diameter and weighing some millions of tons one cannot but admit that the localities where these masses will fall with the velocity referred to a moment ago would be utterly destroyed let us observe however that three-fourths of the globe is covered with water here again is a contingency not so important doubtless as the first but nevertheless in our favor these masses may perhaps fall into the sea forming possibly new islands of foreign origin bringing in any case elements new to science and it may be germs of unknown life geodesy would in this case be interested and the form and rotary movement of the earth might be modified let us note also that not a few deserts mark the earth's surface danger exists assuredly but it is not overwhelming besides these masses and these gases perhaps also the bolides of which we were speaking coming in clouds will kindle conflagrations at various places on the continents dynamite nitroglycerin panclastic and royalite would be playthings in comparison with what may overtake us but this does not imply a universal cataclysm a few cities in ashes cannot arrest the history of humanity you see gentlemen from this methodical examination of the three points before us it follows that the danger while it exists and is even imminent is not so great so overwhelming so certain as is asserted i will even say more this curious astronomical event which sets so many hearts beating and fills with anxiety so many minds in the eyes of the philosopher scarcely changes the usual aspect of things each one of us must some day die and this certainly does not prevent us from living tranquilly why should the apprehension of a somewhat more speedy death disturb the serenity of so many of us is the thought of our dying together so disagreeable this should prove rather a consolation to our egotism no it is the thought that a stupendous catastrophe is to shorten our lives by a few days or years life is short and each clings to the smallest fraction of it 
It would even seem from what one hears that each would prefer to see the whole world perish provided he himself survived rather than die alone and know the world was saved this is pure egoism but gentlemen i am firm in the belief that this will be only a partial disaster of the highest scientific importance but leaving behind it historians to tell its story there will be a collision shock and local ruin it will be the history of an earthquake of a volcanic eruption of a cyclone and thus spoke the illustrious astronomer the audience appeared satisfied calmed tranquilized in part at least it was no longer the question of the absolute end of all things but of a catastrophe from which after all one would probably escape whispered murmurs of conversation were to be heard people confided to each other their impressions merchants and politicians even seemed to have perfectly understood the arguments advanced when at the invitation of the presiding officer the president of the academy of medicine was seen advancing slowly toward the tribune he was a tall man spare slender erect with a sallow face and ascetic appearance and melancholy countenance bald-headed and wearing closely trimmed gray side whiskers his voice had something cadaverous about it and his whole personality called to mind the undertaker rather than the physician fired with the hope of curing his patients his estimate of affairs was very different from that of the astronomer and was apparent from the very first word he uttered gentlemen said he i shall be as brief as the eminent savant to whom we have just listened although i have passed many a night in analyzing to the minutest detail the properties of carbonic oxide it is about this gas that i shall speak to you since science has demonstrated that it is the chief constituent of the comet and that a collision with the earth is inevitable these properties are terrible why not confess it for the most infinitesimal quantity of this gas in the air we breathe is sufficient to arrest in three minutes the normal action of the lungs and to destroy life everybody knows that carbonic oxide known in chemistry as co is a permanent gas without color odor or taste and nearly insoluble in water its density in comparison with the air is point nine six it burns in the air with a blue flame of slight illuminating power like a funereal fire the product of this combustion being carbonic anhydride its most notable property is its tendency to absorb oxygen the orator dwelt upon these two words with great emphasis in the great iron furnaces for example carbon in the presence of an insufficient quantity of air becomes transformed into carbonic oxide and it is subsequently this oxide which reduces the iron to a metallic state by depriving it of the oxygen with which it was combined in the sunlight carbonic oxide combines with chlorine and gives rise to oxychlorine cocl2 a gas with a disagreeable suffocating odor the fact which deserves our more serious attention is that this gas is of the most poisonous character far more so than carbonic anhydride its effect upon the hemoglobin is to diminish the respiratory capacity of the blood and even in very small doses by its cumulative effect 
hinders to a degree altogether out of proportion to the apparent cause the oxygenizing properties of the blood for example blood which absorbs from twenty three to twenty four cubic centimeters of oxygen per hundred volumes absorbs only one half as much in an atmosphere which contains less than one thousandth part of carbonic oxide the one ten thousandth part even has a deleterious effect sensibly diminishing the respiratory action of the blood the result is not simple asphyxia but an almost instantaneous blood poisoning carbonic oxide acts directly upon the blood corpuscles combining with them and rendering them unfit to sustain life hematosis that is the conversion of venous into arterial blood is arrested three minutes are sufficient to produce death the circulation of the blood ceases the black venous blood fills the artery as well as the veins the latter especially those of the brain become surcharged the substance of the brain becomes punctured the base of the tongue the larynx the windpipe the bronchial tubes become red with blood and soon the entire body presents the characteristic purple appearance which results from the suspension of hematosis but gentlemen the injurious properties of carbonic oxide are not the only ones to be feared the mere tendency of this gas to absorb oxygen would bring about fatal results to suppress nay even only to diminish oxygen would suffice for the extinction of the human species everyone here present is familiar with that incident which with so many others marks the epoch of barbarism when men assassinated each other legally in the name of glory and of patriotism it is a simple episode of one of the english wars in india permit me to recall it to your memory one hundred and forty-six prisoners had been confined in a room whose only outlets were two small windows opening upon a corridor the first effect experienced by these unfortunate captives was a free and persistent perspiration followed by insupportable thirst and soon by great difficulty in breathing they sought in various ways to get more room and air they divested themselves of their clothes they beat the air with their hats and finally resorted to kneeling and rising together at intervals of a few seconds but each time some of those whose strength failed them fell and were trampled under the feet of their comrades before midnight that is during the fourth hour of their confinement all who were still living and who had not succeeded in obtaining purer air at the windows had fallen into a lethargic stupor or a frightful delirium when a few hours later the prison door was opened only twenty-three men came out alive they were in the most pitiful state imaginable every face wearing the impress of the death from which they had barely escaped i might add a thousand other examples but it would be useless for doubt upon this point is impossible i therefore affirm gentlemen that on the one hand the absorption by the carbonic oxide of a portion of the atmospheric oxygen or on the other the powerfully toxic properties of this gas upon the vital elements of the blood alike seem to me to give to the meeting of our globe with the immense mass of the comet in the heart of which we shall be plunged for several hours i affirm i repeat that this meeting involves consequences absolutely fatal for my part 
I see no chance of escape. I have not spoken of the transformation of mechanical motion into heat, or of the mechanical and chemical consequences of the collision. I leave this aspect of the question to the permanent secretary of the Academy of Sciences and to the learned president of the Astronomical Society of France, who have made it the subject of important investigations. As for me, I repeat, terrestrial life is in danger, and I see not one only, but two, three, and four mortal perils confronting it. Escape will be a miracle, and for centuries no one has believed in miracles. This speech, uttered with a tone of conviction, in a clear, calm, and solemn voice, again plunged the entire audience into a state of mind from which the preceding address had happily released them. The certainty of the approaching disaster was painted upon every face. Some had become yellow, almost green, others suddenly became scarlet, and seemed on the verge of apoplexy. Some few among the audience appeared to have retained their self-possession, though skepticism or a philosophic effort to make the best of it. A vast murmur filled the room. Everyone whispered his opinions to his neighbor, opinions generally more optimistic than sincere, for no one likes to appear afraid. The president of the Astronomical Society of France rose in his turn and advanced toward the tribune. Instantly every murmur was hushed. Below we give the main points of the speech, including the opening remarks and the peroration. Ladies and gentlemen, after the statements which we have just heard, no doubt can remain in any mind as to the certainty of the collision of the comet with the Earth and the dangers attending this event. We must therefore expect on Saturday— On Friday, interrupted a voice from the desk of the Institute. On Saturday, I repeat, continued the orator, without noticing the interruption, an extraordinary event, one absolutely unique in the history of the world. I say Saturday, although the papers announce that the collision will take place on Friday, because it cannot occur before July 14th. I passed the entire night with my learned colleague in comparing the observations received, and we discovered an error in their transmission. This statement produced a sensation of relief among the audience. It was like a slender ray of light in the middle of a somber night. A single day of respite is of enormous importance to one condemned to death. Already chimerical projects formed in every mind. The catastrophe was put off. It was a kind of reprieve. It was not remembered that this diversion was of a purely cosmographic nature, relating to the date and not to the fact of the collision, but the least things play an important role in public opinion. So it was not to be on Friday. Here, he said, going to the blackboard, are the elements as finally computed from all the observations. The speaker traced upon the blackboard the following figures. Perihelion passage, August 11th, at zero hour, 42 minutes, 44 seconds. Longitude of perihelion, 52 degrees, 43 minutes, 25 seconds. Perihelion distance, 0 0.7607. Inclination, 103 degrees, 18 minutes, 33 seconds. Longitude of ascending node, 112 degrees, 54 minutes, 40 seconds. The comet, he resumed, will cross the ecliptic 
in the direction of the descending node twenty eight minutes twenty three seconds after midnight of july fourteenth just as the earth reaches the point of crossing the attraction of the earth will advance the moment of contact by only thirty seconds the event doubtless will be altogether exceptional but i do not believe either that it will be of so tragical a nature as has been depicted or that it can really bring about blood poison or universal asphyxia it will rather present the appearance of a brilliant display of celestial fireworks for the arrival in the atmosphere of these solid and gaseous bodies cannot occur without the conversion into heat of the mechanical motion thus destroyed a magnificent illumination of the sky will doubtless be the first phenomena the heat evolved must necessarily be very great every shooting star however small entering the upper limits of our atmosphere with a cometary velocity immediately becomes so hot that it takes fire and is consumed you know gentlemen that the earth's atmosphere extends far into space about our planet not without limit as certain hypotheses declare since the earth turns on its axis and moves about the sun the mathematical limit is that height at which the centrifugal force engendered by the diurnal rotary motion becomes equal to the weight this height is six point six four times the equatorial radius of the earth the latter being six million three hundred seventy eight thousand three hundred and ten meters the maximum height of the atmosphere therefore is thirty five thousand nine hundred seventy three kilometers I do not here wish to enter into a mathematical discussion, but the audience before me is too well informed not to know the mechanical equivalent of heat. Everybody whose motion is arrested produces a quantity of heat expressed in caloric units by mv squared divided by 8338, in which m is the mass of the body in kilograms and v its velocity in meters per second. For example, a body weighing 8,338 kilograms, moving with a velocity of one meter per second, would produce, if suddenly stopped, exactly one heat unit. That is to say, the quantity of heat necessary to raise one kilogram of water one degree in temperature. If the velocity of the body be 500 meters per second, it would produce 250,000 times as much heat or enough to raise a quantity of water of equal mass from zero degrees to thirty degrees if the velocity were five thousand meters per second the heat developed would be five million times as great now you know gentlemen that the velocity with which a comet may reach the earth is seventy two thousand meters per second at this figure the temperature becomes five milliards of degrees this indeed is the maximum and I should add a number altogether inconceivable. But, gentlemen, let us take the minimum, if it be your pleasure, and let us admit that the impact is not direct, but more or less oblique, and that the mean velocity is not greater than 30,000 meters per second. Every kilogram of a bolide would develop, in this case, 107,946 heat units, before its velocity would be destroyed by the resistance of the air. In other words, it would generate sufficient heat to raise the temperature of 1,079 kilograms of water from zero degrees 
to 100 degrees, that is, from the freezing to the boiling point. A uranolite weighing 2,000 kilograms would thus, before reaching the earth, develop enough heat to raise the temperature of a column of air whose cross-section is 30 square meters and whose height is equal to that of our atmosphere 3,000 degrees, or to raise from zero to 30 degrees a column whose cross-section is 3,000 square meters. These calculations, for the introduction of which I crave your pardon, are necessary to show that the immediate consequences of the collision will be the production of an enormous quantity of heat, and therefore a considerable rise in the temperature of the air. Now this is exactly what takes place on a small scale in the case of a single meteorite, which becomes melted and covered superficially by a thin layer of vitrified matter resembling varnish. But its fall is so rapid that there is not sufficient time for it to become heated to the center. If broken, its interior is found to be absolutely cold. It is the surrounding air which has been heated. One of the most curious results of the analysis, which I have just had the honor to lay before you, is that the solid masses which it is believed have been seen by the telescope in the nucleus of the comet will meet with such resistance in traversing our atmosphere that except in rare instances they will not reach the earth entire, but in small fragments. There will be a compression of the air in front of the bolide, a vacuum behind it, a superficial heating and incandescence of the moving body, a roar produced by the air rushing into the vacuum, the roll of thunder, explosions, the fall of denser metallic particles, and the evaporation of the remainder. A bolide of sulfur, of phosphorus, of tin, or of zinc would be consumed and dissipated long before reaching the lower strata of our atmosphere. As for the shooting stars, if, as seems probable, there is a veritable cloud of them, they will only produce the effect of a vast inverted display of fireworks. If, therefore, there is any reason for alarm, it is not, in my opinion, because we are to apprehend the penetration of the gaseous mass of carbonic oxide into our atmosphere, but a rise in temperature which cannot fail to result from the transformation of mechanical motion into heat. If this be so, safety may be perhaps attained by taking refuge on the side of the globe opposed to that which is to experience the direct shock of the comet, for the air is a very bad conductor of heat. The permanent secretary of the academy rose in his turn, a worthy successor to the Fontenelles and Aragos of the past. He was not only a man of profound knowledge, but also an elegant writer and a persuasive orator, rising sometimes even to the highest flights of eloquence. To the theory we have just heard, he said, I have nothing to add. I can only apply it to the case of some comet already known. Let us suppose, for example, that a comet of the dimensions of that of 1811 should collide squarely with the earth in its path about the sun. The terrestrial ball would penetrate the nebula of the comet without experiencing any very sensible resistance, admitting that this resistance is very slight, and that the density of the comet's nucleus may be neglected. The passage of the earth through the head of a comet 
of 1,800,000 kilometers in diameter would require at least 25,000 seconds. That is, 417 minutes or 6 hours 57 minutes in round numbers, 7 hours. The velocity being 120 times greater than that of a cannonball. And the Earth continuing to rotate upon its axis, the collision would commence about 6 o'clock in the morning. Such a plunge into the cometary ocean, however rarefied it might be, could not take place without producing as a first and immediate consequence by reason of the thermodynamic principles which have already been called to your attention a rise in temperature such that probably our entire atmosphere would take fire it seems to me that in this particular case the danger would be very serious but it would be a fine spectacle for the inhabitants of mars and a finer one still for those of venus Yes, that would indeed be a magnificent spectacle, analogous to those we have ourselves seen in the heavens, but far more splendid to our near neighbors. The oxygen of the air would prove insufficient to maintain the combustion. But there is another gas which physicists do not often think of for the simple reason that they have never found it in their analysis. Hydrogen. What has become of all the hydrogen freed from the soil these millions of years which have elapsed since prehistoric times the density of this gas being one sixteenth that of the air it must have ascended forming a highly rarefied hydrogen envelope above our atmosphere in virtue of the law of diffusion of gases a large part of this hydrogen would become mixed with the atmosphere but the upper air layers must contain a considerable portion of it. There, doubtless, at an elevation of more than 100 kilometers, the shooting stars take fire, and the aurora borealis is lighted. Notice here that the oxygen of the air would furnish the carbon of the comet ample material during collision to feed the celestial fire. Thus the destruction of the world will result from the combustion of the atmosphere. For about seven hours, probably a little longer, as the resistance to the comet cannot be neglected, there will be a continuous transformation of motion into a heat. The hydrogen and oxygen, combining with the carbon of the comet, will take fire. The temperature of the air will be raised several hundred degrees. Woods, gardens, plants, forests, habitations, edifices, cities, villages, will all be rapidly consumed. The sea, the lakes, and the rivers will begin to boil. Men and animals enveloped in the hot breath of the comet will die asphyxiated before they are burned, their gasping lungs inhaling only flame. Every corpse will be almost immediately carbonized, reduced to ashes, and in this vast celestial furnace only the heart-rending voice of the trumpet of the indestructible angel of the apocalypse will be heard proclaiming from the sky like a funeral knell the antique death song solvet soculum in favilla this is what may happen if a comet like that of 1811 collides with the earth at these words the cardinal archbishop rose from his seat and begged to be heard the astronomer perceiving him 
bowed with a courtly grace, and seemed to await the reply of his eminence. I do not desire, said the latter, to interrupt the honorable speaker, but if science announces that the drama of the end of the world is to be ushered in by the destruction of the heavens by fire, I cannot refrain from saying that this has always been the universal belief of the church. The heavens, says St. Peter, shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall meet with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. St. Paul affirms also its renovation by fire, and we repeat daily at Mass his words, Ium qui venturus et judicar vivus et mortos et seculum per iguim. Science, replied the astronomer, has more than once been in accord with the prophecies of our ancestors. Fire will first devour that portion of the globe struck by the huge mass of the comet, consuming it before the inhabitants of the other hemisphere realize the extent of the catastrophe. But the air is a bad conductor of heat, and the latter will not be immediately propagated to the opposite hemisphere. If our latitude were to receive the first shock of the comet, reaching us, we will suppose in summer, the Tropic of Cancer, Morocco, Algeria, Tunis, Greece, and Egypt, would be found in the front of the celestial onset, while Australia, New Caledonia, and Oceanium would be the most favored. But the rush of air into this European furnace would be such that a storm more violent than the most frightful hurricane, and more formidable even than the air current which moves continuously on the equator of Jupiter, with a velocity of 400,000 kilometers per hour, would rage from the antipodes towards Europe, destroying everything in its path. The earth, turning upon its axis, would bring successively into the line of collision the regions lying to the west of the meridian first blasted. An hour after Austria and Germany, it would be the turn of France, then of the Atlantic Ocean, then of North America, which would enter somewhat obliquely the dangerous area about five or six hours after France, that is, towards the end of the collision. Notwithstanding the unheard of velocities of the comet and the earth, the pressure cannot be enormous in view of the extremely rarefied state of the matter traversed by the earth. But this matter, containing so much carbon, is combustible, and at perihelion these bodies are not infrequently seen to shine by their own as well as by reflected light. They become incandescent. What then must be the result of a collision with the earth? The combustion of meteorites and bolides, the superficial fusion of the uranolites which reach the earth's surface on fire, all lead us to believe that the moment of greatest heat will be that of contact, which evidently will not prevent the massive elements forming the nucleus of the comet from crushing the localities where they fall, and perhaps even breaking up an entire continent. The terrestrial globe, being thus entirely surrounded by the cometary mass for nearly seven hours, and revolving in this incandescent gas, the air rushing violently toward the center of the disturbance, the sea boiling and filling the atmosphere with new vapors, hot showers falling from the sky cataracts, 
the storm raging everywhere with electric deflagrations and lightnings the rollings of thunder heard above the scream of the tempest the blessed light of former days having been succeeded by the mournful and sickly gleamings of the glowing atmosphere the whole earth will speedily resound with the funeral knell of universal doom although the fate of the dwellers in the antipodes will probably differ from those of the rest of mankind instead of being immediately consumed they will be stifled by the vapors by the excess of nitrogen the oxygen having been rapidly abstracted or poisoned by carbonic oxide the fire will afterward reduce their corpses to ashes while the inhabitants of europe and africa will have been burned alive the well-known tendency of carbonic oxide to absorb oxygen will doubtless prove a sentence of instant death for those farthest from the initial point of the catastrophe i have taken as an example the comet of 1811 but i hasten to add that the present one appears to be far less dense is it absolutely sure cried a well-known voice that of an illustrious member of the chemical society from one of the boxes is it absolutely sure the comet is composed chiefly of carbonic oxide have not the nitrogen lines also been detected in its spectrum if it should prove to be protoxide of nitrogen the consequence of its mixture with our atmosphere might be anesthesia everyone would be put to sleep perhaps forever if the suspension of the vital functions were to last but a little longer than is the case in our surgical operations it would be the same if the comet was composed of chloroform or ether that would be an end calm indeed it would be less so if the comet should absorb the nitrogen instead of the oxygen for this partial or total absorption of nitrogen would bring about in a few hours for all the inhabitants of the earth for men and women for the young and the aged a change of temperament involving at first nothing disagreeable a charming sobriety then gaiety followed by a universal joy a feverish exultation finally delirium and madness terminating in all probability by the sudden death of every human being in the apotheosis of a wild saturnalia an unheard of frenzy of the senses would that death be a sad one the discussion remains open replied the secretary what i have said of the possible consequences of a collision applies in the direct impact of a comet like that of 1811 the one that threatens us is less colossal and its impact will not be direct but oblique in common with the astronomers who have preceded me on this floor i am inclined to believe in this instance in a mighty display of fireworks while the orator was still speaking a young girl belonging to the central bureau of telephones entered by a small door conducted by a domesticated monkey and darting like a flash to the seat occupied by the president put into his hands a large square international envelope it was immediately opened and proved to be a dispatch from the observatory of gorisankar it contained only the following words the inhabitants of mars are sending a photophonic message will be deciphered in a few hours gentlemen said the president i see several in the audience consulting their watches and i agree with them in thinking that it will be physically impossible for us to finish in a single session this important discussion 
in which eminent representatives of geology natural history and geonomy are yet to take part moreover the dispatch just read will doubtless introduce new problems it is nearly six o'clock i propose that we adjourn to nine o'clock this evening and it is probable that we shall have received by that time from asia the translation of the message from mars i will also beg the director of the observatory to maintain constant communication by telephone with gorasankar in case the message is not deciphered by nine o'clock the president of the geological society of france will open the meeting with a statement of the investigations which he has just finished on the natural end of the world everybody at this moment is absorbingly interested in whatever relates to the question of the end of our world whether this is dependent upon the mysterious portent now suspended above us or upon other causes of whatever nature subject to investigation end of chapter three